played. It was wonderful. <clears throat> hey, Bob and Judy. Well, I'd like to say hello to anybody that's listening on WYAW 93.5 FM. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Beginning our month of consecration, which is a noun and a verb. Doctors, good to see you. When I was in school, speaking of school, doctors, math was not my favorite subject. I like the idea of math. It's exact, it's pure, it's almost a science. As I said the other night, math is the language of science, and Carol amended me, so I know it's true. Without math, you can't have science. That's why I dislike science also. I was drawn more towards the artsy things, English, literature. I, I went, originally when I was 18, I went to Ohio State, go Bucks, to be an English literature teacher, and that lasted one quarter before I realized I had no determination. I was kind of a slug and a sloth, and it took me three or four years to realize I wasn't a slug or a sloth. I was drawn to English and art and literature, the things that talk about, you know, poetry, the shadows of the soul, the ups and downs of the human experience, the motivations of the heart, kind of those gray areas. I'm drawn to that, which is why I got into psychiatric nursing and chaplaincy and pastoring, because it's dealing with the human spirit rather than the exactness of math. Math was torture for me. I mean, I'm good at balancing our checkbook. I'm I'm good at that, because that's adding and subtracting. I was good until about the eighth grade in math. And then in ninth grade, they started with this stuff called algebra, which I believe is from the devil. And I took a big nosedive. Well, I shouldn't say that because I have teachers in this room here. I took a big nosedive when I had to take that algebra stuff. I even had a problem with the minor things of math, like the signs, you know, the, the symbols. Oh, he's already got it up there. This is just something I found on the internet. But you got an equal sign, you got a not equal sign, but it's those lower two that I did not like. It's the less than and the greater than. Like, how are you supposed to know which one's which? I could never figure out what I'm supposed to do with these things. And so, as I studied for this sermon, and I wanted to use these signs, and I thought, well, they got to be there somewhere on the internet, and I found them. They actually have a Wikipedia page. I think everything's got a Wikipedia page. Do you know that the Adventist haystack, the meal, has a Wikipedia page? You know it's from heaven, if there's a Wikipedia page. Anyway, I went to the Wikipedia page of the greater than and less than signs, and it says that the greater than and the less than signs have been found in documents as far back as the 1560s. That's ridiculous. The people were being tortured with these greater than and less than signs all the way back to the 1560s. In fact, I'm going to blame my downfall on math totally on these two signs, the greater than and the less than sign. If it wasn't for them, I might have done well. I got a C in algebra. 
And then I, they took me to geometry with these rhombuses and these trapezoids. I got a D in geometry. And then I had to take something called intermediate algebra, and I got a D minus. Fortunately, that's all I had to take in high school, because the only thing below a D minus is F. And then when I got into ministry, I assumed I wouldn't have a lot of math. No more numbers. I was very excited that I didn't have to deal with that. And then I started reading the Bible. And I discovered that the Bible is full of numbers. You have seven days of creation. You have 10 commandments. You have 12 apostles. You have four horsemen. You have 5,000 men fed with two loaves and five fishes. Or is it, wait, two fish and five loaves. Wait. Two fish and five loaves. You've got 153 fish caught in a net. You've got the 2300-day prophecy. You've got three persons in the Godhead, two testaments in the Bible, and a partridge in a pear tree. And there is even the greater than and less than idea in the Bible. Did you know that? Who said that? Thank you. Appreciate that. Is it all right if I read my Bible in church? Could you turn to John chapter 3 with me? John chapter 3 starts out with the, probably the most beautiful passage of John or Jesus talking to Nicodemus. But John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, it says... After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon, I think is how you might say that, near Salim, because, this, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison, it says, which obviously is true since he never got out of prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, doesn't say who that is, over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, see now they're trying to start some trouble, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, the one you testified about, that's Jesus, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. In other words, John, you're losing your following. The paparazzi are going over there. What's the deal? To this, John replied, verse 27, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. In other words, he's saying, I know my place. I was the precursor. I was the one sent ahead. Here's the math. Verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. Now this is the NIV I'm reading, the New International Version. He must become greater. I must become less. The King James says, 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Talking about like the strength. The New Living Translation says, He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. In the International Children's Bible, which speaks to me on a very nice level, I can understand that one, says, He must become greater, and I must become less important. I'm not going to say excuse me every time I cough, so I'm saying now excuse me. That covers me for all my coughs. You see this principle of John's statement, realizing that God is greater than him, goes far beyond what's happening on the shores of the Jordan River as his people try to get him to kind of get upset with Jesus and his people because John's people... And the crowd are leaving to follow Jesus, which is exactly what John knew would and should happen. You see, this is the mark of conversion and true Christian character, to see the glory of God and to allow yourself to submit to God and be changed into his likeness, to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It's important to realize what kind of person John was in his character and his integrity. The Bible says that he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb even before he was born. So check that out. It says in Luke 1, he leaped for joy in his mother's womb when Mary walked into the room while Jesus was still inside Mary. When Mary walked into the room, pregnant with Jesus, and John was in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, the baby, John, leaped for joy. Talk about uh, when the baby starts kicking. John started kicking when he knew Jesus was in the room. That's the kind of man he was even before he was born. He was considered, in Mark 1.3, it says he was considered the great prophet who prepared the way of the Lord. And Jesus said of him, Among them that are born among women, there has not been a man greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus says about John that of all the men who've ever been born, there's not one greater than John. And then John looks at Jesus and says, He must increase and I must decrease. And so if John can realize his need for humility his need to decrease in position as Jesus increased in prominence, then shouldn't you and I almost always see that need as well? See, John the baptizer serves as our example. And this is the crux. That's one of those funny words my wife and I like to use. The crux. This is the crux of the Christian walk. It's at the heart of the believer's struggle, as Paul calls it, to die to self. It's the issue of lordship and servanthood. For you to admit in your own heart that Jesus is Lord and that you are his servant. That is the issue of Christianity. Think of how many personal and church problems are caused by our failure to surrender at this one point of Christian teaching. 
of all the various problems in the human heart and in the church, when all the excuses are removed, there is just one solution, and that is that he must increase and I, we must decrease. As the song says, when the music fades and all has slipped away, we want to come back to the heart of worship. Now, we might be willing to compromise, you know, instead of he must increase and I must decrease, some of us would rather compromise on that one, feel like we can bargain with God, maybe go 50-50 with him. Like, I'm, I'm okay, I will let Christ be exalted, but don't take me totally out of the spotlight. Maybe we can have two spotlights. Maybe we can have co-spotlighters. You see, I have no problem with the man upstairs, as some people like to call him, getting some honor and glory. It'd be great if Jesus can become more prominent as long as I don't have to lose my prominence. That's what some people think. I'm willing to be humble as long as everyone sees how humble I am. As my one son says to my other son when he's making fun of him, he'll say, look how humble I am. And that's the way many of us are. We're willing to do things as long as people see us do it. Get the photo op. You see, too often we're more self-centered than Christ-centered, and we process things and think about things on how they relate to us and not how they would grow the kingdom of God. We live a life of convenience, and Christ might be one more item in our lives that we're willing to use to make our lives more convenient. We're willing to add him on. It's that taking away part that we're not crazy about. We both must increase, might be the way some of us would like to say it. I don't care if Jesus increases as long as I get to increase too, which is maybe what the kids mean when they're doing this, you see. They want to raise the roof for Jesus and for me instead of like that, you see. We're okay with the math that involves the adding. It's that subtracting part that we're not crazy about. Note the way we pray at times. Our prayers become very self-centered. They're about us. We pray for our job and our health and, and that we're told to bring our request to God. But we leave out parts of it, of giving glory to God, of, of asking that His will be done. Think about the songs we sing. One of, one of the problems with many, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, I'm one man with one opinion, many of my problem with some of more, more contemporary praise songs is that they're about me rather than God. They'll talk about how I am in relation to Him. I thank you that I'm this because of you instead of to God be the glory, great things he has done. You see, too often Christians behave not like the word is our guide, or what would Jesus do, not following the WWJD, what would Jesus do, but it's more like the WDIW, what do I want? And how does that make me feel? And if I'm not too crazy about it, then don't ask me to do it. You see, for John, there was no substitute on this idea, no compromise on this idea of lordship or the supremacy of Christ. John literally, John the Baptist, literally lost his head for Christ. 
for following God. So this month of February, I thought it would be good to take a month to talk about being consecrated. Consecration is one of those fancy words, which I always have to look up to make sure I know what they mean. To consecrate something means we set it apart for a holy or a divine purpose. So to, to have a consecration month would be to focus on setting ourselves aside for God to use. One of the classic verses about this is in Joshua chapter 3, when Joshua and the Israelites are going to cross the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And he says to them, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Can somebody say amen? Because my voice is faltering. That would be a great verse for everybody to etch into their arm or write on a piece of paper or dig it into the paint of their car <coughs> or their neighbor's car. Consecrate yourself. For tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. In other words, for the person who dedicates their heart to Christ, the future is bright. Now, you might end up getting your head chopped off but you are walking into the glory of God. So that's the whole thing, is to die to self, to our own selfish ways, and to live for Him. To consecrate yourself means to give yourself to God, and the first step is to admit and declare and confess that He is the Lord in your words and in your actions to make Jesus Lord of all. And that's why I had uh, young Ariana, who did a wonderful job reading. Matthew 7, he says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, they're saying the words. They're calling him Lord. Not everyone who says those words, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. So it's word and it's action. It's walk and it's talk. It's a total life experience. So what does it mean to say and live and believe that Jesus is Lord? To consecrate yourself to God. I have three short little points, because I know you're saying, preacher, don't give me three long points, because you've already been talking ten minutes or so. They're short. They're quick. So you don't have to fall asleep. I'm going to give it to you, quick, and then we're going to go, boom, I'm going to hit you, and then we're going to get out of here. Ready for point one? Boom, here comes point one. Lordship of Jesus is accepting Jesus as sovereign. Sovereign's another one of those weird words. I can never spell it because it's got an E and an I and then it's got a G in there. Like the word foreign. Those are the I before E except after C unless it's neighbor or weird or all these other words you see. It's really not I before E. A lot of the times it's I before E. Well, this one, sovereign, is one of those words with the E before the I. I'm wandering. It must be the cough drop. What's in these cough drops? You see, 
Jesus must be sovereign. Sovereign means he possesses and exercises supreme authority. It's an acknowledged leader. It's a controlling influence. That's what the dictionary says. So sovereign is someone who is over all. Head of all. Lord of lords. King of kings. So it all begins with you and I confessing that Jesus is sovereign. That he is the owner of all things. That all things were created by him and through him and for him. And that nothing existed without him. And when he is Lord of all, then you and I can authentically grow. Authentically, for real, grow in our faith. That it's not just a series of beliefs, and it's not just coming to church, and it's not just owning a Bible, and it's not just closing your eyes during prayer. That you have a real living relationship with the real sovereign Lord of all. It's not just words. It's reality. It can be. You can have a real growing relationship. And so until you can settle that basic fact, you can't go any further. So the first one is to realize that he's sovereign. He's overall. He's the powerful creator of the world. Jesus is Lord. Second, lordship is placing this sovereign God first in your life. Making him primary first. In Matthew 22, it says, Teacher, meaning Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God, help me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And Lordship is placing him first in your life. And the reason that he is first is that he is sovereign. So when you've realized he is sovereign, then you can place him in your life because that's the place that he deserves to be. You're not doing anything for him. You're acknowledging what he already is. When you praise God, when you acknowledge him, you have not done one thing for him. You're acknowledging who he is, and it changes you. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. Acknowledging him as sovereign doesn't change God, it changes you. So consecrating yourself doesn't mean you make yourself holy, it means you acknowledge him and you allow him to consecrate you. First, you acknowledge him as sovereign. Second, you put him first in your life, primary. Third, I told you these were short, didn't I? Boom, told you. Third, you care for the gifts that he gives you. You take care of those gifts. You're a steward of the gifts that God gives you. Lordship, consecrating yourself, is accepting and noting and acknowledging what God has given you and caring for it. And the reason you care for it is he's sovereign. 
He's first in your life, so therefore you care for everything that he has given you as gifts. Spiritual gifts, talents, skills, your personality, everything that you have is the Lord's. Do you understand that? When we do a sermon, if you hear somebody say we're going to talk about stewardship, they hopefully don't mean just your money. Because stewardship is not about your money. Stewardship is about you taking care of the things that God has given you. Can somebody on this side say amen? And what about this side? Can somebody on this side amen? How about here in the middle? You're twice as many people as them. You should be able to say it twice as loud. Can you say amen? Up in the radio, they're saying amen. See, it expands your lungs so you don't fall asleep. Let's do some old-fashioned windmills. Anybody remember the windmill? I can't bend over anymore. Help me, Suzanne. We could do something together. You see, God gives you gifts. And in Matthew 25, there's a parable about the talents. Now, a talent back then was not a skill like, you know, tap dancing or... Like, that's a talent. Come on, you guys love that one. Nobody can do that but me, right? Anybody think they can do that? No, I don't see any hands. Nobody can do that. No, 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 I don't see them. No, no, I don't see them. I'm the only one who can do that. See, that's a talent. But in the Bible, a talent was not a skill. A talent is a weight of, I think it was gold or something, but it was a weight. Like 75 pounds, let's say, was a talent. So when this man came and gave them a talent of gold, that was a lot in this parable, Matthew 25. And probably we got the word talent like, from that word talent, which meant something of value. We get, wow, you've got a real talent. The way you tap dance, the way you do that, you see. So this one man in the parable of Matthew 25 has five talents given him by the master. The other man has two talents given him by the master. And the other man has one talent, all given them by the master. All the talents, all the gifts, all the skills are given by the master, but not equally, but fairly, as the master deemed appropriate. Can somebody say amen while I drink water? It's like as a parent, you don't want to treat your kids equally, you want to treat them fairly. Because maybe the one kid telling them to go to their room, they love that. And the other kid, you tell them to go to their room, they're a social butterfly, that's, you see, you got to find out. I've wandered again, but I'll get back to my notes, so here I go. So each one's got these talents and these skills. And at the end, the one with five had ten. And the master said, well done. The one who had two ended up with five. And the master said, well done. The one who had one, when the master says, what are you doing with your one talent? He said, well, I knew you were a hard man. And I didn't really trust you. And I knew you'd come back and you'd want what was yours. So I took this one and I buried it. So when you came back, I could give it back to you. And he says, that's not what I wanted. I wanted you to take what I gave you and invest it. So God never wants back exactly what he gave us in the same shape that he gave it to us. He wants it back wisely invested and cared for. So if God has given you talents and skills and spiritual gifts and you sit on them, so to speak, sit on them, you are wasting your time and your talents and you're wasting the things that God has given you to use. Whether it's playing a flute, whether it's singing, whether it's skills that you might have, whether it's compassion, whether it's spiritual gifts, whether it's money, 
whether it's abilities, whatever you have has been given to you by God and you should be using it to his honor and glory. Thank you. But when you look at this story, two men in this story took what the, the master gave them as a blessing and one man looked at it as a burden. The one man says, yeah, I got five, I'm going to invest them. I got ten, yeah. The other man goes, oh, I got two, yeah, and now I got five, yeah. The one man's like, oh, great, I got this one thing. This one thing the master's gave me, and I think he's hard, man. I don't really like him, and I'm afraid that he's not going to like what I would do with it, so I'm just going to bury it. So when he comes back, I can give him back his stinking talent and tell him to go away. I didn't want it anyway. When God gives you something, it is your privilege. It is your duty. It is your honor. It is your responsibility to use it for him. Now here's the good news. Well, everything I've said is good news. Remember when I mentioned to you my utter disdain for the greater than, less than signs in math and how they led to my eventual downfall in my 2.0 average in high school. It's true. I graduated with a 2.0. And that was after getting all A's my senior year, which tells you where I was those first three years. I told you I was a whatever dude. So the only reason I like greater than and less than at all is because John gave me some life and applied it to, to Jesus. But this whole idea of greater than and less than is turned upside down in the kingdom of God. Because John realized, as you and I should, that Jesus must be greater than and we must be less than. He must increase as we must decrease. But as we become less and he becomes more, he can use us more for his honor and glory. So less of you means more of him. Less of your broken humanity means more of his glorious divinity. Less me means less pride, less anger, less drama, less gossip, less bitterness, less complaining, less selfishness means more Jesus. More, more about Jesus. I had to write a song called that. So read through the New Testament and you will see this idea that our loss is his gain, which he then turns around and gives it back to us. So our loss, less of us, more of him, that's his gain, and then he turns around and gives that back more to us so that his gain is our gain. Less of me and more of him means more of me filled with him. If you had a glass full of water and it was you and you poured it out, that's more room for the Holy Spirit to be in. So less of me, more of him is actually good news for you. He's not taking anything away from you. He's filling you up with more of him. But first, you have to see him as sovereign. And second, you have to put him first. And third, you have to see that he has gifted you in a unique way to be you. So he's not asking you to be me, and he's not asking you to be a cookie-cutter, Seventh-day Adventist Christian. He's asking you to be fully you. You that's different than me. You that's different than the person sitting next to you. 
He has wired you a certain way to be his hands and his feet. And this is math made easy. He must increase and I must decrease. More of him means less of me. And in this way, more of him, less of me, means that if I go back to school, if I go to the school of Christ, I can finally get an A. No more 2.0 for me, well, C average. No more C's for me in the school of Christ. La Escuela de Cristo. I want an A. But it won't be because of me. It'll be because of him and me. Shaken down, the essence of it is that he must increase and I must decrease. I need a steady reduction of me and a gradual infiltration of him. And that comes from realizing that he is sovereign, he is Lord of all. And I must see that and place him in my life Allow him to consecrate me, for tomorrow the Lord will do great things among us. And as you do that, it's less of me, more of him. Go ahead, have a seat, or please be seated, I guess. You know, that song was a great song to close with. That was written by, the words were written by Fanny Crosby, who wrote some of the most beautiful hymns. And she was blind. So if we would regard that as a disability, she saw it as something to see God in a different way. So there's nothing, you holding, nothing holding you back except your own submission to Christ. And when you submit yourself and allow him to consecrate you, your life will change for the better. There is, no, there is nothing bad in God. It's purely our hearts which hold us back. So I found this little quote somewhere, and I liked it. It says, why, if you have been increased in Jesus' name, endowed with the heart of a courageous lion, would you go on living like a timid church mouse? I thought that was good. When you've been given the heart of a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, why would you live like a timid church mouse? God bless you this week. We'll continue this talk next week on this idea of consecration. Let us pray. Kind Father, we thank you for the blessed assurance of knowing that Jesus is ours. Bless each one here, men, women, boys, girls. Bless each one. May this week be great. May we be safe. May those who are sick be of good health. May those who are discouraged be strong in spirit. If anyone is traveling, may you be with them. Bless the Super Bowl one way or another. And God bless us. Amen.